please remain standing for uh, the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 21 through 47. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. An inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthan, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he, that he had breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger brother, and the younger and Joseph and Salome, and when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. And thanks, Jim. Well, good morning, Disciples Church. It is good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosher, and I have the privilege and honor of opening up this particular text and word for us this morning. Um, and if you're, if you're visiting with us today, a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. 
The text that we just heard read and that you read along with is a heavy one. And my hope is that through the course of this morning that we do actually feel the weight of this text. That we actually feel the darkness of this text because it's a text that's probably familiar to you from, uh, from occasions like Good Friday where we read this and we kind of feel the heaviness of it, of course, with the promise of the resurrection, of course, knowing the end of the story. But in that moment, to be able to see this story as Mark lays it out for us with all of the darkness and all of the heaviness that surrounds it, the pain of this story comes through the words of Mark as he's writing. And as, as we've been working through this text, particularly in the last six chapters that have led us to the cross, Mark here finally arrives at the peak of the story. All human history leading up to this point had been focused, had been directed towards the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And all human history since has been permanently altered by it. And it really comes down to just those two simple sentences, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they crucified him. They crucified him. And those three words serve as a seeming conclusion to a book that has been full of promise. After all the anticipation, after the restoration of the sight to those who were blind, after the grace that Jesus had displayed to the prostitute, after the forgiveness that he'd extended to the woman caught in adultery, after the resurrection of his friend Lazarus from the dead, after the extension of friendship to the thief and tax collector named Zacchaeus, after the promising of the kingdom of God, they killed him. And this, this moment was the deflating collapse of all that hope. Yet it was exactly as he said it would be. You'll remember that Jesus at the beginning of this text had been called to stand before the religious rulers in what can only be described as a show trial. It was a scene of judicial pomp orchestrated to execute a miscarriage of justice. His words, those sacred words from an innocent tongue had been twisted to make him appear guilty. And whole other accusations were fabricated in order to create the grounds for his execution. And it was in that moment where a blindfold was placed over his head where he began to be beaten. Beaten by the same religious hands that held the Torah in the synagogue mocked and ridiculed by the same pious voices that had proclaimed that God would provide a Messiah who would deliver his people. And in doing so, the fulfillment of the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6, was completed when speaking of this particular moment hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah wrote, I gave my back to those who strike, and I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face, from disgrace and spitting. And so they ripped the clothes from Jesus' back and they stretched him out over a large rock. They tied his hands down and with a cat of nine tails, they began to tear his body apart. Each swipe sending his body into spasms of pain. 
so brutal that oftentimes the recipients of such beatings wouldn't survive to the end of it. And somehow Jesus survives this beating, a cheap purple robe meant to evoke the imagery of royalty was placed onto his beaten back, a crown of thorns some two to three inches long that had been woven together was pounded into his skull, and he was paraded around as king of the Jews. He was sentenced to die by means of the cross, and the robe that had just adhered to his back from all the blood, was now ripped free, once again reopening all of those wounds that he'd just suffered. And a heavy, rough, wooden crossbeam was placed on his back. Weighing some 40 to 100 pounds, he was forced to carry the very instrument of his death to the place of his execution. And in verse 21, as Jesus is stumbling up that hill, barely able to propel himself forward, let alone carry the instrument of his torture. The guards pull a man out of the congregation gathered there to see what was going on, and they instructed him to carry the cross for Jesus. And in a very insightful moment, Mark actually gives us the name of this gentleman, a man named Siren, Simon rather, of Cyrene, the father of two other men. And the reason that's given to us is because it seems, it appears as if this man later, after seeing this innocent Jesus crucified, actually comes to put his faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ and becomes the parents of believers in Rome. This man is forced to help Jesus carry the cross because the bruised and battered Jesus couldn't hold himself up any longer. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. If you were to walk there, the stone, the way that it was formed, actually looked as if it formed the face of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. So Jesus in this moment is again stripped naked, humiliated. Soldiers gamble for his meager clothes, taking what little civility he had with them. And with that simple phrase, they crucified him. Now, Mark doesn't go into the detail of the crucifixion. Really, none of the gospel accounts go into great depth as to what that crucifixion looked like. Most of what we know of the crucifixion comes from history, and there's probably a host of reasons why the, why the gospels don't focus on it, one of which we'll spend a great deal of time talking about this morning, but probably as well because in the context of this time, any reader would have known what a crucifixion was. Probably many of them, if not all of them, had actually seen a crucifixion, so this wasn't new for them. This was a scene that they knew well, but for us, context is helpful. Jesus is stripped naked and he's laid down on the crossbeam, a beam that would have extended at least the length of his arms. And that crossbeam would have been attached to a vertical post that would have held the crucified up. Jesus was laid out on that cross, his arm was stretched outward, and a nail the size of a railroad spike would have been driven through his hand or his wrist. That same process was repeated on the other side 
And at that point, the guards would have lifted up the whole cross, the whole weight of Jesus' body now hanging on his hands. That post would have been dropped into a socket in the ground. And as it was dropped into that socket, pain would have shot through Jesus' body. And then a ledge, a small ledge, just, just big enough to get your toes on, would have been placed within the outstretched reach of Jesus' feet. Because what killed a victim of the cross was not blood loss most often. The Romans were very good at extending this torture. What would have killed a victim of crucifixion was asphyxiation. In that prone position, arms outstretched, the chest cavity falls, it becomes difficult for the individual to breathe, and so that little toe ledge was there so that the individual could take whatever strength they had left and push off of it to lift their chest just enough to get oxygen. But as the body weakened and the victim couldn't hold himself up, he would eventually not be able to draw enough oxygen in and he would die altogether. The Roman historian Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and disgusting penalty and said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. So offensive was this death that it could not be performed on a Roman citizen. And they didn't even want to think about it. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. And the Bible itself in the Old Testament said of the death of the cross, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed of God. It was an experience so terrible, so brutal, so painful, that we had to invent a new word to describe it. Our English word excruciating comes from the Latin excrucis, literally, out of the cross. And yet, into this most cruel human experience steps Almighty God Himself. The Creator who'd been denounced by His creation. The ruler who'd been ridiculed by rebels. The Savior who'd been spurned by the very ones He came to save. The God-man steps into time and into the very savage center of human cruelty. And we find an interesting note in verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And that little verse is so strange. It seems so obscure and out of place. It seems so benign in the middle of this whole text. But it seems as if in this moment, the suffering, uh, as the soldiers are witnessing the suffering of Jesus, they decide to offer him a little bit of wine. And this seems to have been a customary practice. Perhaps it was just a common courtesy. But this person is experiencing such brutality that even the soldiers' hearts were a little bit affected by seeing it, and so they offered wine to offset the pain. Or just as likely, if not more likely, perhaps they offered the wine just to dull the senses a little bit in order to extend the torture. 
But either way, people in this position most often would have received that wine gladly. Anything to move the mind off of what the body was experiencing. But Jesus here refuses it. Now, why is this little note here? Why does Mark include this tidbit. I think it's because in this moment we are actually seeing a little bit of the revelation of the character of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. When you look at this text, going back to the beginning of the chapter and slightly before, what you find is that all the mockery and all the cruelty and all the mistreatment, all the suffering that this crowd inflicted on Jesus was in some sense a challenge, a dare, if you will. All throughout this chapter, especially in verses 27 through 32, which Jim read for us this morning, they were saying things like, if you're such a great prophet, let's throw a blindfold over your head and we'll punch you and you tell us who hit you. If you're really the king of the Jews, if you're really this royal figure, if you're this messianic character, let's put a robe on your back and a crown on your head and you prove to us who you actually are. And in this moment at the cross, those challenges become intensified all the more. If you're the Messiah, if you're the God-man, if you're the promised deliverer of God's people, let's put you on a cross and you get yourself down. See, the crowd acted out the very same foolish attitude that we often have a tendency to have. We try to define strength and power, and God's will, and God's goodness by the limited understanding that we possess. If God's really good, certainly He'll do this in my life. If God's really generous, certainly He'll provide that. If God's really who He says He is, certainly He won't allow me to experience And on and on we go with our challenges to the very character and nature of our God. See, these people wanted proof. And in the absence of proof, they wanted to make Jesus hurt. But in this moment, as Jesus refuses the wine, he's actually giving us an insight into his identity as the Messiah. It's what he said in John chapter 10, verse 17, when he said, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And when Jesus was in the process of being arrested, if you remember a few weeks back, Peter in this moment steps up, he grabs a sword and he swings it at the high priest's servant and he cuts his ear clean off. Do you remember that story? And immediately upon doing that, Jesus turns to Peter and he says to him, do you think I cannot call on my father? And do you think that he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way. So as one author stated, that these soldiers don't realize how great Jesus really is. Jesus is so infinitely great that he expressed his greatness and his heroism by not taking the wine. He expressed his greatness and his heroism by not coming down 
off the cross. Because in the greatest act of self-control in the history of the universe, the all-powerful God became weak and stayed weak under these circumstances, didn't flinch, and took it out of love. Love motivated this act of heroism, this demonstration of bravery and courage that is at the root and the heart of every great story you've ever heard. But as we talked about last week, all of that physical suffering and all of that physical brutality, as painful as it was, paled in comparison to the spiritual suffering that Jesus experienced in this moment. Verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And creation itself expresses the darkness that Jesus feels in this moment. This is the middle of the day. He was put up onto the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. He died at three o'clock in the afternoon. At the height of the day, the world goes dark. Now, we've talked about this moment numerous times throughout this book, but understand that the most painful experience of Jesus on the cross was the relational alienation that he experienced from his father. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we think of things most often, we tend to think of things at least most often in how we experience them physically. But imagine the psychological, emotional, and most importantly, the spiritual pain of what it was that Jesus experienced here. Jesus and the God the Father had been in eternal, unbroken, intimate communion with one another. Eternal, unbroken, intimate communion. Perfect harmony. Perfect joy. Perfect fulfillment. Perfect satisfaction within God's self-sufficiency. And even upon leaving the glories of heaven, even upon giving up that power and that glory and that place, Jesus leaves heaven to be with us, to be with creation, to be with the broken humanity. But here in this moment, for the first time in eternity, for the only time in eternity, Jesus' perfect relationship with his Father is broken. This is an idea well explained by Dr. Sam Wells. I want you to listen to this. He expresses it beautifully. He says, the cross is Jesus' ultimate demonstration of being with us. But in the cruelest irony of all time, it's the instant Jesus finds that neither we nor the Father are with him. Every aspect of being not with, of being without, clusters together at this agonizing moment. 
Jesus experiences the reality of human sin because human sin is fundamentally living without God. Jesus experiences the depth of suffering because suffering is, more than anything, the condition of being without comfort. Jesus experiences the horror of death because death is the word we give to being without all things, without breath, without connectedness. Jesus experiences the biggest alienation of all, the state of being without the Father. See, hell is described in all kinds of different ways throughout Scripture. And the reality of hell is made perfectly clear through Jesus' own words as well as other texts. But at the very basest level of what hell is, the very essence of hell is being out of the presence of God. That even on this earth, as brutal as things can be, as terrible as people can be to one another, with afflictions and sicknesses and injustice, as cruel as the world can be, we still in this moment experience the common grace of God that he's withholding his wrath. But on the cross, God did not withhold his wrath from Jesus. The cup had been handed to Jesus and he drank every last drop. And in that moment, Jesus Christ experiences hell on earth. That the future who awaits those who do not trust in Jesus was experienced by our Savior in this moment. And notice the unique way that Jesus expresses this experience. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Dr. Wells, whom I referenced earlier, said the most tantalizing thing is that Jesus' last words here are a question. A question that does not receive an answer. And that question should rattle us to our bones. That the Father lost His own beloved Son. And for those who are parents, you can imagine, at least on a micro scale, what that must have felt like for the father. And the son, in this moment, loses the perfect relationship that he had with his father. And the father and the son did this for us. So here's the question. How was Jesus' death actually for us? What does it actually mean for us? And we find the answer, at least part of it, in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now again, we need context here because this is hard for Gentile minds 2,000 years removed to understand, but imagine if you could in this moment what was happening. After six hours of agonized, labored breathing on the cross, feeling the lack of the presence of the Father, 
the brutality that he'd experienced physically, Jesus Christ calls out to Telestai. It is finished. And he breathes his last. He gives up the ghost. And as that happens, the curtain of the temple, the six-inch thick physical barrier that separated the place where the priests did their ordinary work from the place known as the Holy of Holies, where God literally dwelled on earth, was torn from top to bottom. See, in that Holy of Holies, once per year, the high priest was permitted to go in there on the Day of Atonement to make an offering for sin. And each year, that offering had to be given again for the sins of the people of the previous year. And if you read in Hebrews chapter 9, what you find out is that that particular Day of Atonement was only for the unconscious acts of sin in people's lives. It was only for the sins that they unintentionally committed, the ones that they didn't purposefully set out to do. And so each year, this this sacrifice had to be made, this atonement had to be made for the partial forgiveness and partial access to God to be experienced by His people. That both the access to God and the forgiveness provided by God were temporary and limited in that act of atonement. But what we find is this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. I'll read it for you. Notice these words. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that which is not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, here's the most important part, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve, which is to worship, enjoy the living God. See, when Jesus came in this moment, He didn't enter into the presence of God by the blood of bulls and goats. He came through the presence of His own blood. No more yearly sacrifices that provided partial forgiveness and limited access to God. But in this very moment, Jesus Christ became sin. That according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He, that is God the Father, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That as the sin of the world, your sin and mine, past, present, and future, was placed onto Jesus, He was separated from God the Father. Why? So that you could be reconciled. Jesus' deepest question on the cross went unanswered so that in the moment of doubt, you could be assured of the Father's acceptance of you. His deepest need went unmet so that your deepest need could be provided. 
And as that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, it was God himself indicating that we, are no, we no longer have any need for the partial forgiveness or the limited access mediated by a priest because in Jesus, we have been provided total forgiveness, absolute acceptance, unfettered access. And when you see Jesus in this moment, it forces you to account for him. All through this book, what we've been saying is that Mark writes this with the intention and purpose of bringing Jesus face to face with you. That you would be forced to reckon with the God of the universe made flesh. That you would be forced to account for what it is you think, say, do, and believe about him. And this moment is, as it were, an invitation. What are you going to do with Jesus? Come face to face with God of the universe, sacrificed on a cross. What do you do with him? We find the answer of what the centurion did in verse 39. This Roman soldier who had contributed to the brutality and the death that Jesus experienced stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. St. Augustine writing some 1,600, 1,700 years ago, said this. He said, the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love. Given the opportunity, mankind would happily kill God. And we hear that and we recoil. No, of course, of course we wouldn't. And even to the extent that you wrestle with the existence of God, if you're here and you go, I don't know what I believe about any of this, but I'm at least open to the idea of the existence of God. And If I encountered God, certainly I would bow and worship of Him. I wouldn't try to destroy Him. And mankind itself proved that that was not the case. Given the opportunity to kill God, we took it. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. We killed God. And this passage ends with Jesus' lifeless body being pulled from the cross and laid into a borrowed tomb, fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament. So when we read the Apostle Paul writing things like, I know that neither height nor depth nor principalities, or powers, nor any creature, nor anything else in all creation will keep us from the love of God. How can Paul say that so confidently? How can Paul be so self-assured in writing that to us? He can be so confident because we killed God and God returned with a word of forgiveness. To quote Robert Barron, it's the proof that divine grace has no limitation of its reach. 
if grace can bring forgiveness for the murder of Christ, then there is nothing in our lives that is incapable of being forgiven. And that is so hard for us to believe. We tend to view ourselves as the exception to the rule. And we do it in one of two ways. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth bringing up again. We, talk, we do this in two ways. There are some people who say, my life is so broken and I've done so much wrong and I've hurt so many people and I've disappointed so many people and I've broken so many relationships and I've screwed things up so royally that there is no way God could bring forgiveness to someone like me. And Jesus on the cross stands as evidence that you are wrong. And others come from a religious perspective and they say, you don't understand how hypocritical I am. You don't understand how hard I've tried. You don't understand how I've tried to confess and to repent and I keep falling into the same sins and I do things over and over and I try to make up for it and I try to, I try to enact penance and I try to do all of the things that I know how to do and I'm still, I'm still struggling. How in the world can God forgive me? And we look to the cross And once again, we find the answer. That your salvation and your forgiveness cannot and are not dependent on anything you do. Because if it was up to us, we would mess that up too. But thanks be to God, once for all on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty, purchased the pardon, gave himself as the sacrifice, full and complete. And listen, he didn't just come to bring pardon, but to bring relational reconciliation. Reconciling us to God and God to, to us. To bring propitiation, which is that theological idea of the satisfaction of the wrath of God. So that as that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, we no longer had any need for the partial forgiveness and limited access to God because through Christ's death, the veil was torn and a way was made for us to have total forgiveness and unfettered access. And this is exactly what we remember in communion. What we're doing at the Lord's table is something we call a sacrament. And a sacrament simply means a ritual that points to something beyond itself. The whole idea of the sacrament is pulled from the Greek word mysterion. It's where we get our word mystery. It's what St. Augustine called the outward visible sign of an inward invisible grace. And when we come to communion, when we come to the Lord's table, what we're doing is we are reminding ourselves. It is, in a true sense, a remembrance in a unique and special way that, that you are, in a sense, eating and drinking the gospel. Not literally, of course, but representatively that you remember and that it becomes part of you. So think of it this way. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And aside from grilling and eating out and hanging out with family and all the other things that people do, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to remember all of those who gave their lives to defend our country. And many people across this nation will go to Go to war memorials and grave sites to remember those who paid the ultimate price for our freedom. 
I remember a few years ago going to the War Memorial in Oconomowoc right after it opened, and I remember looking around and beginning to look through the list of names of people who sacrificed their lives. And as you begin to read name after name after name after name, you start to get some sense of what it was that they sacrificed. I remember in that moment being moved in a way that I hadn't been previously. Now, what happened in that time of remembrance? I didn't learn anything new. I didn't receive any new facts, but that symbol carried with it a deeper meaning and experience. And in a similar way, when we come to the table, we are doing it in remembrance. In remembrance, we look backward. We look at the cross and we look at Jesus' sacrifice. We look at what he gave. We drink the wine or the juice, remembering the blood that he shed. We We partake of the bread which represents his body that was given for us. But we're also seeing how this experience has brought us to where we are. As those who've been redeemed and reconciled and forgiven and accepted and brought into communion with God the Father and with one another. And finally, it's a looking forward. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. And we'll talk about that at length next week. But the gift of communion is that Jesus explains the gospel in one meal. He reminds us of who we were, of who he is, and who he's promised to be for us forever. So as we come to this table this morning, it is neither magical nor is it empty. Communion is, at least in part, our story through Christ. It is a declaration that we who were broken and lost have been saved and set free. And because of that, this table is reserved for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So if you're here today and you're wrestling with these things and you're not sure what you believe and you're not sure if you believe any of this or you're still trying to figure things out, we're so, so glad that you're here. And we'd love to talk to you about those things. But we'd ask that for this morning that you reserve the table and stay stay in your seat. Perhaps read through some of the things that we've sung about this morning. Read through the text and what it declares about our Savior and our God. To ponder those things and work through those things in your mind. But for those of you who know Jesus Christ is your Savior, whether Disciples Church is your home or not, you're welcome to partake. So what we're going to do is we're going to take about two minutes of silence to be with our Savior, to remember these things, to focus on Him. And then you're going to come forward down the center aisle to receive the elements and then return to your seat. And please wait. We'll take those elements together at the end and then respond in worship. Let's pray and go into silence. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what it is that you did for us. That you provided salvation full and free. Unfettered access whole forgiveness, a relationship with you, and a home in heaven. And Lord, for those who are here today who don't know these things, would the story of what you experience, certainly physically, but also spiritually, be one that that pricks their heart, that prods their mind? God, would they be brave enough to ask you to demonstrate to them your reality? Would they be brave enough to have conversations and to ask hard questions? And don't let them run from what it is that you may be doing in them. And to those of us that know you, God, would you not allow us to 
view this through the sanitized lens that we typically view the cross, but to be reminded of all that you experienced and that you did it on our behalf to provide our communion with the Father and our communion with one another. So God, we pray that these things would be made real in our hearts and lives in this morning, and it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.